Today, we have a very special guest, Jay Doss, the co-founder and president of Sapphire Ventures, which currently has an $8 billion AUM. 14 of Jay's investments have become publicly traded companies, and more than 15 of them have been acquired. Jay's focus is on SaaS and the next big thing in crypto, B2B blockchain infrastructure, and has led investments such as a $210 million Series C into Falcon X, which is now valued at $3.75 billion. So first off, thank you, Jay, for taking the time to join the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Seamus. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for, on my side to be here. I appreciate it. So let's start off with the very beginning. I know you studied computer science and mechanical engineering over at Brown, but where did you start getting interested in venture capital and business? And take us back to your journey from decades ago to where you are now. Sure, sure. So I actually grew up in India and I came to the US to do my undergrad at at Brown. And my journey was kind of predefined by my parents because as good Indian parents, they wanted me to be a teacher like my dad, who was a professor in one of the IITs. So my path was supposed to be come to the US, get my undergrad, go get a PhD, and then go back to India and teach like my dad did. But that all fell apart because when I came to Brown, I had a great time there, and I ended up wanting to move to San Francisco. And I ended up graduating and joining Oracle. And while I was here in the early 90s, I think as soon as I got my green card, I went and ended up working at a bunch of startups you know, and also ended up having a small startup that I sold right before the dot-com boom happened, right? And so there was a little bit of money saved up for me, and uh, I decided that I actually wanted to study economics and have nothing to do with, with computer science or electrical engineering because my dad was always on it. And I went to business school at Booth because there was a lot of people being, working on behavioral economics because I never thought economics as being a real science, but very driven by human emotions. And Chicago at that time, I was studying, doing a lot of research in that. While I was there, I managed or happened to fall into venture capital because my goal was either to come out of business school to start a company, another company, or do some research around behavioral economics. And it all ended up happening that I started working with a small small fund out of uh, Chicago, where I did a lot of due diligence in the company that they were evaluating and also looking at both public and private companies because they were a brokerage that also invested their clients' money into public stocks. And that was a time where I realized that as as an investor, you have probably one of the best jobs you can find because not only do you don't always have to do the dirty work, and I'll come to that later, but most of the time, most of the work is done by the entrepreneurs and the founding team. But the more important thing is that on a daily basis, you are actually meeting really, really incredibly talented, driven entrepreneurs and who are not only teaching you about why they want to build the companies, but also teaching you about the new spaces that they are investing in or they're trying to build a company in, as well as the new business models that they are focused on, right? And I realized that that was probably the best job one could where you you invest in company, help entrepreneurs build the the company into, as we call it, a large company of consequence and kind of be part of their advisor on their journey as they build these companies. And you mentioned you fell into venture capital over at Booth. Was there a certain key point or moment that you were like, hey, this is really why I want to do venture capital? Or is there some sort of transition in your brain that made you be like, hey, I got to be a venture capitalist? Uh, well, it's actually kind of a very, 
interesting. It was really driven by my wife, who was my girlfriend and fiance at that time. She basically said that I had some offers to move to Seattle with, with Microsoft or go to New York or stay in Chicago. And she basically said that she's not going to marry me if you don't move to the Bay Area. <laughs> so, and the only offer I had that at that point from the Bay Area was with Intel Capital. So that was kind of an easy choice to make. So in some ways, my wife was responsible for starting me on my venture career. Yeah, definitely. And then what were your like initial thoughts about venture capital when you first entered that ecosystem in that space? And then how have those thoughts evolved to today? Yeah. So look, I, I entered like all more than 20, 20 years ago when venture capital was still a very much of a boutique asset class, right? It was not institutionalized like this, like it is right now. The amount of AUM that all the venture funds together had is probably, was probably a tenth of the size of the AUM of all the funds we have. There were very few funds who actually who had even a billion dollars in total AUM on, across multiple funds. So it was more about the, the and, and the industry was very much of a, I would say, closed kind of a network where if you hadn't gone to either Stanford, GSB, or to Harvard, you probably didn't get into venture capital so easily. And entrepreneurs also had to come from a certain kind of a pedigree or a certain kind of a school before they got funded. And that has all changed in a, in a huge way, right? So I ended up at Intel Capital, and I have to give credit to Intel because when I started Intel Capital, it was a very small team, right? It was like less than 20 people. By the time I left two years later, it was like over 300 people. But more importantly, I kind of learned a lot of investing while at Intel because they were investing in a, in a large variety of different sectors. And it allowed me to look at internet models, semiconductor investing, software investing all under one roof. It was, it was great because in, in some ways, you saw the company that that time and I just joined was at the height of the, of the dot-com boom, where you saw your investments you made and two years later were like 10x or 15x, like what happened to people from 2019 to 2021. Yeah. And of course, I saw the downside where all of those 10x returners were down to like 1x given what happened with the, with the bust after the boom. Definitely. And what was the number one thing you learned over at Intel Capital that you still use towards your everyday investing today over at Sapphire Ventures? Yeah. The, the number one thing is that, look, you have to trust the entrepreneur, right? I think the number one thing is that you can't second guess the founder, the CEO about what you're doing, because if you don't trust them and, you, and you're not transparent with, with the entrepreneur about what you want to be done, where you are coming from, and how you can help the company, it's never going to work. Because at the end of the day, if the entrepreneur does not trust you, they will not always listen to what you have to say. And in the same way, if you don't trust the entrepreneur, as a board member, as an investor, you don't always get all the insights into, into what's going on into the company, right? Because you as a board member or even as an investor, you get a very kind of curated vision or, of what's going on in the company. So that was the number one thing is that to build a trust and only invest in, in CEOs who actually you can trust and you really believe in what they're doing. And then the other thing that I learned over time is that, look, you kind of have to build a relationship not only with the CEO and the founder, but also all the other management team, right? Because a lot of the troubles that might be brewing within a company, you can actually figure out what's going on if you actually talk on a, on a regular basis with all the other management team members, right? Because although they will be guarded with you being as you're on the board, 
you can always read between the lines and understand what's going on and what is not working. And sometimes that is much more easier to kind of fix before it becomes a real problem and something blows up. Yeah, definitely. And fast forwarding to today, when did you decide to transition out of being part of a different fund or Intel Capital and decide to just start your own fund, Sapphire Ventures? Yeah, so my, my colleague and I, Nino and I, have been working together almost over 20 years. The job I got was with a fund that was affiliated with DFJ, and that is where I met my co-founder and colleague, Nino. And we have been working together for that long. So we actually decided that when we joined SAP Venture that we wanted to spin it out. And it took us about four years to spin the fund out in 2011. And then we have gone on to raise actually almost 10 billion right now in AUM. And the journey has always been entrepreneurial, right? We sometimes tell CEOs that we can empathize with you because we are not just investors. We didn't come into a platform that was already built. Like there are funds that are 50 years old, 40 years old, and you come in and they're well-established. But you don't always have the same journey. And, and what we have built is that we kind of built a firm from five people that we, when we spun out, to about almost 100 people now. And that entrepreneurial journey hasn't ended for us. And that is why we can empathize a lot with, with our CEOs, because we are going through the same thing. We are kind of growing up. We you know, increased the size of our firm quite a bit during COVID. And now we have growing pains, right? Things like how do you motivate all the young investors and young people that you have hired, how you get everybody who didn't work together in a remote environment, all of those things that our CEOs are facing, we kind of face from a, from a human capital perspective. Totally. And you were early investing in some of the largest technology companies over at Sapphire, for example, companies that are very well known now like Square and Box and many other IPO'd companies. What was your journey finding them and then for Square and Box specifically, was there anything that the founders did either in the pitch meeting or even before you invested that made you go like, hey, I have to be part of this company. I have to fund this company. Yeah, look, I think Square is a very interesting kind of a journey, right? It was a very contrarian bet. I think people all forget uh, what happened when we invested. We have always followed Square and we actually had a chance to invest in Square before the round we invested in. But the, the round that we invested in was actually in the pre-IPO round along with GIC. And at that time, if you go back and look at all the journalists and the articles, they basically said that Square was going to go out of business, right? And that, that it had no business model. It had no ways to kind of monetize. But we actually not only liked Jack Dorsey, the CEO, but we actually, in some ways, I think this is a little known fact, actually bet also on the CEO, Sarah, right? She was the CEO at that time and eventually became, I think, the CEO. But she was the one who was driving all the business at that time and kind of bet on the fact that, look, payments was going to be huge. I was also on the board of another payments company in India called Paytm, which is also IPO'd since then and like kind of the largest mobile wallet in India, a mobile wallet company. And, and I think at that time, people hadn't understood how big transactions can become, right? Because it was a transaction model and most investors hadn't figured out just like now that if you collect like one and a half percent of every transaction and you can build the GMV of those transactions to a large number, you know, that thing is a huge, huge kind of a revenue number, right? Which Square has proven. And I think if you look at it, a lot of the companies now that are building like a Brex or a RAM, all of these companies that are based on the interchange fees are all taking a page from Square's model where Square basically was the first one 
to implement a kind of a transaction kind of a revenue model. And as a board member, you've seen inside about some of these companies going public and some of them, as you said, going staying private and deciding to raise more money. What would be some of the positives or negatives, you'd say, of these companies going public through an IPO versus continuing to raise more money in the private markets? Yeah, I think the great thing about being a public company is that your feet is held to the fire on a daily basis. If you come in every quarter, you kind of come in, you you kind of... If you don't meet the numbers and if you don't provide beat and raise, analysts, people are going to trade out of your stock, you know, and your share price is going to go down. So it is, it is a very good thing that you have to have a very good business, which is repeatable, which is growing. So it actually keeps you very, with the metrics and the focus of the company very clear. Uh, you know, it also provides a lot of governance, right? I think the regulations that to be a public company are much, much stricter than being a private company. So there's a lot of governance around what is going on with the company, how it's sizing revenues, how it's treating its employees. All of that has to be kind of regulated and above the board because they're all audited. The cons are, of course, that you are driven by quarterly kind of metrics. It is very hard to change courses when you're a public company. You, If you want to kind of go and say, okay, we're going to let our revenues go down because you're going to focus on another side of the, another business, adjacent business, which is growing more rapidly. You're not able to do all the corrections to the company, to the product, to the sales team, if you're public. And that is why there is this huge kind of, like Dynatrace is a great example. They were a public company, they did okay, and then they were taken private. And then I think Tomo Bravo or, or you know, Base or Premier, I forget which one, fixed it up. And then they brought it back to be a public company. And now it's, it's doing really, really well. So that is the kind of the con or the downside of being public, which is that you can't really fix things that are broken uh, in the public eye and you, your stock will get hit in a, tremendously if you try to do that. And speaking of fast forwarding a little bit more to today, you were investing before the dot-com bubble even occurred. What were some of the key lessons you learned then as an investor? And then in today's economy, how can we take those lessons and apply them to today's venture landscape? Yeah. No, I think one of the big examples that has already played out to some extent is that sometimes you wait out for a better outcome because you think things will get better and you'll get a higher price for your company. That doesn't always happen. Look at Zendesk. They kind of had had offers probably at a higher price and then they ended up taking a valuation that was lower than what had been offered before. It's interesting. Twitter is actually an interesting case where they actually managed to get the price they, they were because however the deal was structured. But typically, one of the key things that you have to realize is sometimes, you know, you won't get a better price. It's better to take the offer right now and kind of move on and maybe build another company rather than kind of holding on to it and saying things will, things will come back. So that's kind of one, one learning that I think a lot of companies will, will realize. The second is that if you're a public company, you might be better off being a private company because you can fix a lot of things. As a public company, you might not be able to do acquisitions that are not accretive, that actually starts burning more cash for you. So you might be better off just being private and use a P kind of private equity firm as being your supporter and going in and fixing everything and maybe becoming a larger company when you come back out as a, as a public entity, right? And I think the other thing is that in this downturn, what I also remember and what I think companies should do is you can't always play defense right now because in the downturn, everybody ends up 
being very defensive, cutting costs, shrinking their business and, and focusing, which is great. But this is also a time to be go on the offense. So you can go and acquire companies if you have the capital, if you have the share price. And then also you can acquire talent because there's a lot of people, talented folks in management layers who are not willing to stay at a company where, whose stock price, because whatever valuation they raised their last round, is kind of inverted. So you can actually hire a lot of great talent into, the, into your company. So yeah, so at this time, the companies who will come out ahead and do well after this the downturn are the ones who are also playing offense along with playing defense. Yeah, you made a great point on downturn, and we're starting to see that a little bit more now. And for venture capitalists, you mentioned that, well, I guess for entrepreneurs, that they might not be spending as much money on growth. And for VCs, instead of looking for these rocket growth companies that might not be as available as they were a few years ago, how can venture capitalists find long-term growth companies that can withstand this down market? Yeah, look, I, we think that we are kind of in the perfect place because software or SaaS companies have a recurring revenue model. And if you most likely, even in the downturn, what we are seeing is that companies still require the software. Maybe they are not renewing as much, as many seats or as much in volume as they were before, but they're not churning away. So in, in that way, software businesses are great because you always need software to run your business and your life so so we are very happy that we are in the in the in this business in the software services businesses but i think the other thing that people have to be cognizant is that you have to make sure that you have enough cash as your runway because if you nobody knows when the markets if you're about to go ipo like that stage or even raise your next round of funding it's not clear when the markets will open up completely. So you have to make sure that you have enough runway, which means that you have to cut costs and become more efficient. But what we are advising our portfolio companies is that, look, it's, it is okay to be more efficient. It will mean that your growth is going to come down because there is just a natural rhythm of when you hire more salespeople, they need some time to ramp up. So you're always going to be spending more than, than the growth and not being as, as efficient. So we are saying that it is okay to be grow slowly. Maybe you grow 40% this year, but be closer to cash flow break even than trying to grow 80% and burning a lot of cash. And I think the rule of 40 is something that a lot of folks and investors are going to focus on going forward. Definitely. And to wrap it up here, what would be some of your takeaways for the audience on the venture landscape right now and what you're working on over at Sapphire Ventures? Yeah, look, I, I think I'm only going to talk about enterprise software because that's kind of the space we invest in that, that we know really well. Enterprise software never goes out of fashion. If you look at it, the beauty of investing in this thing is that there's always a new platform that comes on online and then a lot of things that are built around the platform has to be done. So a great example, you used to have client server computing, you know, long, long time ago. And you had a company that were built around that. Then you had cloud computing that came along. And then you had things like Datadog that showed up. You had Teradata in the old age before, and now you have Snowflake on the new cloud computing thing. So for enterprise software, there's going to be another version of this platform that is going to come along. And we actually fundamentally believe that a Web3-based, token-based, or a blockchain-based platform, compute platform is happening. I know, and there's going to be a whole slew of companies which were in kind of the web 2 or the cloud computing world will all happen in the new computing platform which will be much more distributed and tokenized and based on blockchain 
And that's what we are investing in. And are there any blockchain companies that might catch your eye right now that you can talk about? Or Yeah, yeah. So we have a company called Block Demon in our portfolio that I'm on the board of. And, and they are basically focused on providing the infrastructure that you need for any financial services to offer cryptocurrency for their customers, for enabling staking of your tokens. And they're probably one of the largest staking as a service company out there. And they have... Uh, probably most of the, a lot of the financial services as their customers. And, and they are definitely building almost like the next AWS for the blockchain or other or the crypto infrastructure. Gotcha. I'll have to take a look at them after this call. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Jay, for taking the time to join the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Seamus. Thanks for having me. I Bye appreciate now. it.